and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. It's a busy time for this week's guest, impressionist John Culshaw. Later today, he's heading off to Radio Theatre at Broadcasting House to record the latest episode of Dead Ringers, BBC Radio 4's brilliant topical satire show featuring a huge cast of characters from the worlds of politics and celebrity. You're listening to Tweet of the Day just before 6am which makes you either a new parent or an old man with a dicky prostate. (laughs) Today, we're up early to listen to a unique sound, a loud, panicked, cacophonous wailing. Yes, that's a thousand human beings opening their morning post to see their new mortgage rates. And John's been nose to the grindstone, rehearsing not one, but two shows for this year's Edinburgh Fringe. I've managed to seal him away, easily tempted by a coffee and a bun, to have a natter and a catch-up. John, it is great to see you again. It's been way too long, hasn't it? It has been. It's great to see you today, Helen, and thank you for having me on the show. It's a delight to uh, to have a natter with you today. You're so welcome. You're in the middle of a new series of Dead Ringers, which I really enjoy. It's been going for so many years now, but the news gods, well, they just have kept on giving, haven't they? Oh, they do, they do. It's 23 years it's been on, Dead Ringers. The pilot show was on the 2nd of June, 1999, which was my birthday. And it's interesting how, as you say, with the news gods in the early days, you know, there was Tony Blair there, you know, these sorts of characters making a contrast to, you know, to John Major who had preceded him. So it felt like a new sort of palette. But I think the news in many ways ran slower now, you know, it's mainly just topical news stories. In the older days, there was room for a few bargain hunt sketches and things like that. Now it's mainly just the topical stuff. So it's interesting how it's changed over those 23 years. It's gone quick. But in terms of politics, you really couldn't make it up, could you? The amount of prime ministers we had and chances of the Exchequer every year. That's been astonishing, really, and quite unbelievable. And just watching the writers trying to keep pace with all of this at this speed. From this detached way, getting the news through a comedy script, in a sense, it gives you a feeling of how the normal setup of everything, prime ministers, politics and so on, seems to be loosening from its moorings with the way things operate now. Something's detaching, something's going on. There are cracks falling. It feels like the breaking down of the Roman Empire, something like that, very slowly and steadily. And through the prism of comedy, you see that in a different sense, I think. But the comedy, it's almost been comedy if it wasn't our livelihoods and our future as Great Britain. There's been comedy in some ways in terms of what's actually happened. Yes, exactly. It's utterly far-fetched in its own right. And the writers, you know, (laughs) the, the absurdity is already done for them. So you've got to find these other angles upon it which they always, always do, writing specifically about what's actually going on, you know, how they try to just cover things over and get by and trotting out the same prepared statements, all of this, using comedy to form an angle round and get at it that way. So the audience sort of cheer you on and say, oh, thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying if, if satire and comedy could just get under the spin and the audience feel that something is something truthful is being got at, then the audience are on your side. It's really clever stuff. I would imagine for you a busy time too because of the changes of characters. Boris, in terms of voice, I suppose, has been a gift. But then suddenly you've got Rishi Sunak at number 10, who hasn't, to me, got as distinctive voice. 
how do you start with new characters? And has that been quite a lot of hard work with all the different changes we've seen recently? Yes, it, it has. It's, it's rather, I think doing voices is rather like a game of chess. You have to keep an eye on, you know, two or three moves ahead. So, you know, you know Boris might have been you know, there we were, you know, doing Boris and showing how he uses comedy and clowning as a distraction. When you're Prime Minister, that's going to run out pretty quickly. You can get away with it perhaps as the London Mayor, but as PM, that's not going to last you forever, as it turned out. But yeah, just two or three moves ahead, two or three moves ahead. Jan Ravens was, you know, polishing up the Liz Truss and so on. You know, over on the far side, to sort of sound like a horse-facing commentator for a moment, that was Rishi Sunak looking like the fellow who he was like to be. Rishi, it's an interesting stage for him. I don't think the audience fully know who he is. He doesn't do many interviews. He's not one of those politicians or prime ministers that you see that often compared to his predecessors. So the audience is still trying to find out who he is. But he's sort of like a more of a syrupy Tony Blair, I think. Is he? I think he is. If we have, you know, the, Mr. Blair, who would be very staccato like this, and if you sort of run that around and made that a bit more syrupy, then you get into that tone of Rishi Sunak not pronouncing the letter G at times and really being sort of informal. And look, you know, if we need to put the national debt on my wife's credit card, that is fine. That is what we, I will work for you. It, it's, it feels like a voice, <laughs> feels like a voice that's just on the border of singing. You know, when you go to watch musical theatre and somebody might be sort of giving a speech like this and then it's the build up to the song. <laughs> you almost expect Richie to do that. <laughs> He's on the borderline of music every moment. And how do you start, John, with a new one like Richie? Is it hours of watching him on television or listening to him on radio? And do you look at mannerisms as well? Oh, yes. Yes. You never quite know what you'll notice first. It might be a mannerism. It might be a certain phrase. Might be a certain tick, might be a certain word. Whatever is the most distinctive and recognizable thing about a particular character will loom towards you. So at first, I think you have to watch in quite a non committal way and just see what's going on. And with Rishi, there seemed to be, in contrast to previous prime ministers, wanting to be, you know, very digital you know, sort of Insta posts and things like that and videos and creating content on the digital platforms and being a sort of a Twittery president, prime minister. Yes, president. I like that. Let's do that. That's the kind of thing. He's, he's quite digital in his way. It's all about, you know, I, I may not have uh, communicated the policy, but our content was awesome. That's the sort of feeling with him, I think. And do you have to practice, John? Practice, practice, practice to be fully satisfied with the voice that will then be heard on programmes like Dead Ringers. It's a bit like learning a new language. You know, listen, repeat, listen, repeat. Just let it go into your subconscious until you can see the character in your mind's eye. And the voice that you do syncs up with that. And it all seems to click together. And your instinct will tell you when you've sort of got there. But yeah, doing the practice, putting the mileage in until it lands. You've got to get to know them. The audience have as well. And uh, there'll be a moment of sort of symbiosis. That was a word I never expected to use. <laughs> can you spell it, though? Um, <laughs> I don't think I can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think uh, I probably could. I'll, let me get me marker pen. Yes, I'll have I a go. you probably could. I mean, Boris, obviously, no longer at number 10, but he continues just to give, doesn't he? Yes, he's a bit like, sometimes I see very odd symbolism in things. I remember, you know, that one of those Gloucestershire cheese rolling events, and there was a huge... <laughs> 
barrel-shaped, anvil-sized lump of cheese rolling down a hill <laughs> with people chasing after it. I thought that was the perfect <laughs> metaphor for Boris Johnson's entire career. <laughs> a great lump of double Gloucester barreling down a hill is a symbolism you could use, I think. He does keep going on. At this present time, it feels a little bit like in the days before he was perhaps even London mayor, you know, on the outskirts, being a, a bit of a disruptor, um, using comedy as a distraction. <laughs> less so now. Now there's a little less of the comedy there and more of this, you know, anger at being you know, hard done by, playing this sense of victimhood and absolutely appalling. My allies, Nadine Doris and Reese Mogg, splendid people. They support me. There's a combativeness. Well, more like moaning, less of the comedy now, but still very much there, a stone in everybody's boot. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what he'd make of the Connor brothers' new portrait of him. Fantastic at satire. And the words on the portrait of him is, I've been lying all my life and that's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I thought that was absolutely great. That's fantastic. Um, what do you love about Dead Ringers? You must love it because I don't think you'd have been doing it for 23 years. But what keeps you going and what, what do you look forward to when you go in to record a new episode? There's a certain style of writing which is all its own. With Dead Rings, it's not just the gags, it's not just the impressions, it's not just the characters, not just the topical sketches. It sort of has an attitude all of its own, an opinion on things, a take on things. There's a rhythm in the comedy which tends to come through, beautifully steered by Bill Dare, its uh, creator and producer. And I think it's got an attitude all of its own, somewhere between Private Eye and the Beano Annual. <laughs> That's it was such a described. good analogy. Yeah, it's <laughs> a bit like that. So you mix all of those things together. And one of the greatest joys of it is the first read-through, when we get uh, the scripts for the first time and, you know, they're still warm off the printer. And the first read-through, when we get the gags for the first time and it hits us fresh and the laughter We've got to get all of that out of our system pretty quick. And that first read-through is, is where we do it. And do you do that first read-through in front of your live audience? Or does the audience come in when you're more ready for the record? Yes, a little bit later in the day for the audience. The first stage, we'll sit around a table in a, a meeting room or a rehearsal room. Big sort of oval table will be sat around there. A bit like those cabinet meetings in the cabinet room at number 10. And we'll read through everything. And then after every sketch, there'll be a bit of a chat. Oh, yeah, we can probably trim that section, that section, get to that gag a bit quicker, come out there, let's swap those characters around. All of those notes will be made. It takes us about an hour and 20 minutes to get through all of that. And then the writers, along with Bill Dare, will rewrite and trim and just do a bit of shaping around. And then the next stage, we go through into the radio theatre itself, and all of our five microphones are lined up a bit like, you know, the Temptations or the Ovaltines or Westlife, <laughs> something like that. We'll read it on microphone and the sound effects will be played in. Then we've got that rehearsal in the bank. And then the next stage, in comes the audience and we step out. And that's when the show's recorded. What a treat. And you've got a great cast. I'm sure there's great camaraderie between you all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is. And that comes through, I think. Yes, it, it's because, you know, when you're performing a sketch with somebody, it's, it's a bit like playing football. You've got to pass the ball. You've got to take it. You've got to get the timing and everybody threads together. 
Jan Ravens and I have done it since its its earliest days. So we sort of know each other's rhythms. There's quite a nice instinct there. Lewis McLeod is our great sort of sort of like the prop forward of the whole thing. Huge energy, tumbling energy. He does a lot of Boris on the show. He does a Donald Trump. Our, our Boris's and Donalds are different. I mean, my Boris is this uses a whole different set of sound effects. And my Donald Trump is sort of, uh, I don't know, I would probably have him pitched him when he's uh, in an interview with CNN. Not that I talk to them very much. It's very bad media people, fake news media, very bad people, nasty questions. Lewis takes it to a different zone altogether once again. And I think we all find our own takes on certain characters. You've got to have your own set of observations on people. And who are your favourite characters from Dead Ringers that you do? Oh, my goodness. There's so, so many. I do love Professor Brian Cox. Yes, whenever the experts come on and they bring this other rhythm and great recognisability. And with Professor Brian Cox, you have all of these gesticulations and hand gestures pointing to the stars and the sky. You can have all of him. A favourite new one, oh, Martin Lewis. He's a great favourite new one. Yes, Martin Lewis, number one for money saving, number 7.5 on the Richter scale. You take the cashback, you put it in an ice, you put it back into the cashback, then you get the double cashback. It's the same old show on my radio, on my radio. Booyaka, booyaka, jungle is massive. It's on the website, it's not difficult. (laughs) (laughs) He sort of becomes so recognisable now and a sort of a people's champion. He has. The, it's funny, you're making me laugh because he's a friend of mine yes. and he married, actually somebody you know as well, yes. he married lovely Lara. Yes, we worked together on a series I did a few years did ago. You? Yeah. Well, she's doing brilliantly. Lara Lewis, or Mrs. Money Saving Expert, yes, now doing yes. panoramas and all sorts of things on longevity exactly. and ageing and all sorts of things. But yeah, Martin, so I met Martin many years ago. He is perfect take off, isn't he? The, yes, and he yes. talks like that all the time. If you go around for a coffee, that's how he talks. Exactly. He's got sort of like this broadband way of thinking at great velocity and coupled with this sense of a people's champion that he has and this recognisability. In an, an impression sketch, if you just exaggerate that a little bit, you sort of end up with this almost like this superhero who breezes in and saves the day, you know. So yes, he's my favourite new character. Is he? He is a bit of a superhero. I think he saved the day for many of us in terms of money. Oh, Oh, yeah, decoding everything, yeah. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Basically, there's no shortage of stuff drying up for this programme, is there? I think you could be there another 23 years, just saying. Certainly, the velocity of the news seems to increase all the time. In earlier years of the show, you know, if we did a series in the summer, it would be the silly season. It was a bit quieter. You know, the stories would be a bit more quaint. It ain't like that now. It really is not. It's just as packed and vociferous as ever. An analogy that I like to use is rather like a giant container full of fish and you open the doors and it just barrels out, torrents of fish just swamping through everything. The news is rather like that now with with all the 24-hour news channels which have to compete with each other to be watchable and to make their mark, combined with social media where every little opinion pops out and they all merge together, almost like a starling murmuration swooping around in these great unwieldy senses of reaction that big institutions don't really know how to handle. We're very much working all of that out. And yes, this is the speed at which technological advances and the sort of a technological revolution in communication that's enabled all of these different platforms to exist has just turned everything up to the speed of 
It's astonishing, really, the speed of light, the pace of the news taking place. And with news taking place so quickly now and changing and with this 24-hour world that we're all living in, does that mean that you have to stay across everything? Because presumably when you're playing these characters, things are happening every hour, aren't they? Stories are changing every hour. Does that mean your life is absorbed in the news, John? Do you never really get to switch off from that? You, you switch off in, in your own way, I think. You might, you know, I, I can watch a news bulletin just simply for the sake of it. But afterwards, it's when your thoughts just sort of rise, certain thoughts will rise to the surface and you, ah, notice that, notice that, notice that. And this is how it manifests itself to you. And politics, have you always enjoyed politics? It's always been so full of the great astonishing characters. When we think back to, you know, Mike Yarwood's time of Harold Wilson, of Edward Heath, later on Margaret Thatcher. I think the characters are there at the moment, but there's perhaps less of them. And they're surrounded with more blander characters. An interesting thing at the moment is how they all seem to be losing their grip and how events are overtaking them. And the speed and the pace of, of everything that's happening is beyond a level that they can keep up with. And this thinking of needing to represent politics in these little, small, shareable chunks that suit social media, I think that rather devalues it in many ways. And it's, it's astonishing to watch. It is really incredible to watch at the moment. This is a real transition. That The history lessons of the future will focus a lot on this period, I think. I think you're absolutely right there. Now, as well as obviously being busy with your record today for Dead Ringers, Edinburgh Fringe isn't far away. And mm -hmm. I can't believe in all these years as a journalist and somebody who loves comedy and stand-up, I've never actually been, but you're going up with two shows. Yeah. Tell me about both of those shows and a bit about the magic of Edinburgh, because I know you really enjoy it, don't you? Oh, it's a very special occasion. Edinburgh through August. It's just a wash and alive with creativity, with this sense of celebration. Endless shows and so much to see, so much to do, and a great spirit of generosity that binds it all together. And a great feeling of optimism and celebration. It's just a very, very happy little window. If that could be crystallised and rolled out across the whole world as a philosophy, I think we'd do very well with that. And this year, yes, I've got two shows. My, my one at four o'clock at the Gilded Balloon is a, a stand-up show called Imposter Syndrome. Quite largely improvised, bit of music running through it. I thought I'd try that this time. And asking the audience for characters, seeing which people they suggest. And then before that... I'm in a play called uh, Lena, all about Lena Zavaroni. I remember Lena uh, Zavaroni yeah, from Opportunity Knox. That's right, exactly. Yes. And I'm playing Huey Green in that, ah, in that play. Gosh, I haven't heard Huey Green's name mentioned since I was a nipper, I don't think. <laughs> yes, I used to watch it. It's real 1970s stuff. Oh, I don't even remember his voice. He was from Montreal, Canadian, rather anglicised in certain words. Here I will start, yes, very much. Uh, thank you very much indeed, very tremendously. And I really want to tell you, friends, and I mean that very sincerely, you have to curve this uh, this part of your face upwards to uh, sort of give that smile, which is partially the Joker from Batman, friends. I really want to tell you, have to make sure you don't strain to George W. Bush. I think from Huey, the next uh, station stop would be George W. <laughs> so... <laughs> You've got to separate those two out. And this show, it's really about Lena Zavaroni, sort of reminding everybody of, of her great, great talent, 
but also what a trooper she was, how resilient she was, and how she dealt with the challenges that she had. She suffered with a lot of depression, anorexia, these things, and she really tried to fight that. She left us when she was 35, back in 1999. It's a bittersweet play, really. It, it does focus on what a trooper she was and how she f fought so hard to get past all of these challenges. But it also reminds people of what a great talent she was, what a brilliant performer. And she's being played by the brilliant Erin Armstrong, who just captures her spirit so beautifully and with this great lovability and sense of admiration. And Erin's got this astonishing voice of her own and she mixes it with that Lena Zavaroni growl that she had that she could fill Carnegie Hall with so it's nice to be part of that she was team. she was young wasn't she when opportunity knocked I'm just trying to remember she was nine was she only nine and was that why life was difficult do you think John because she was thrust into this extraordinary spotlight so young Yes, exactly. Was that at the heart of her difficulties moving forward? Yes, I think that was totally the heart of it. Because the business side of it seemed to be this just absolute top priority with no regard given to anything else. No regard to how she felt. You know, there needed to be a lot more nurture around. There needed to be a lot more awareness of the, you know, the pressures, the difficulties, the self-esteem. There needed to be a little bit more wisdom. There needed to be a bit more, you know, come on, just, don't, don't worry about that. Step away from that. Let's just reset over here and you concentrate on doing this and then we'll set aside some time for some reality, for your real life, for your real self. It seems to me that that side of things was missing and the demons mounted up and up and up until eventually it just tips the scale. And the play poses the question is, has that situation improved now? Maybe it's more difficult now. Or maybe there is more understanding of people's feelings and mental health and all of that. How do the pressures differ from the 70s? You know, in the 70s, when there was three channels and the newspapers, there it was, a concentrated beam of pressure. Whereas now with social media, a million little fireflies that never lets up, 24 hours, is it more difficult to escape? poses those questions. Well, you think in, in those days when there were three channels, the audience figures for shows, they were in the 20-something million, weren't they? Because we didn't have other things to sort of dilute that audience. But it's interesting. I wish, well, in fact, I will take you if you'd like to be taken. Next time my friend Emily is in town, Emily did a one-woman show at the Fringe last year, and it's all based on her experience as a 15-year-old in X Factor and how it pretty much ruined her life going through the whole X Factor experience. And she's turned it all around now. She's mid-twenties and has a fantastic award-winning one-woman show, which is full of her singing and clips. And, you know, it's all got Simon Cowell in it. And oh, that's extraordinary. I'm so pleased that she took that experience and, and it galvanised her own wisdom to grow from that. Not everybody could do that, I imagine. No. These programmes are such a machine, aren't they? It's like going through a combine harvester and being spat out the other side. So when you've got that resolve right at, at your core, then, yeah, thank goodness for that. I think what you didn't see on the show when she was in America was there was a 10-second bit on the show where Nicole Scherzinger is trying to decide whether the duo that Emily's part of, whether they're going to ditch Emily, and she's only 15, but in reality, they left her on the stage for 45 minutes while that decision was made. And that's, she's a kid, but she's 
turned it all around into a hysterical show and actually she's marrying somebody from Saturday Night Live and so comedy is her so she'll be back in Soho so if you fancy a night out that would be amazing the Grimsby yes. gal I'll take you to see Emily in um, in her show because I think you'd really enjoy it oh that would be amazing she'll be interested be in yours too and tell us a bit more about imposter syndrome and where's that title from there must be a story behind your title John oh titles are so difficult to find everybody's every title's been thought of really most of the time particularly for impersonation shows so finding a title is quite quite a tricky thing usually they'll just come to you quite by accident and there's been so many good ones that have gone before which makes it even more difficult Rory Bremner who else is a fantastic title Lewis MacLeod is not himself is a brilliant <laughs> title so sometimes they'll just come to you in a flash I remember once seeing an advert for The Great British Bake Off. Ah, The Great British Take Off. Good, that'll do. So I've done a show with that title. And I think I just saw the words imposter syndrome, a news report or somewhere like that, somewhere quite random and innocuous. And it just went ping. It's all right, imposter syndrome. That looked good on the poster. And it's sort of to do with doing impressions. Right, we'll have that. <laughs> That's how they come quite often. It's a bit like sort of catching something flying through in the air. Oh, and how, John, did you discover when you were younger that you could take people off? Where does all of this come from in this Lancashire lad? I think it comes from a joy in being benevolently mischievous and growing up in Lancashire as I did, surrounded by so many lovable characters who could have been written by Alan Bennett or somebody like that. My grandmother's friends and relatives I remember Mrs. Jump, who used to clean uh, my grandmother's house, you know. She used to say, now then, uh, now then, I've, I've, done the, I've hoovered the dining room and the carpet, the pattern on the carpet in the squares, it shows me where to take the hoover here. Allows me to map the carpet out, you know. There's 10p, get a Spider-Man comic, but don't tell your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. See, lovable characters like this. You know, Mr. Humphreys, the geography teacher, who used to speak every word was sort of stretched as though it was, you know, cheese off a pizza that won't snap. <laughs> <laughs> or chewing gum on a, your shoe or something. I think I borrowed that to do Robert Peston in these later days. Thank you, Mr. Humphreys. Um, <laughs> it's a joy of um, just enjoying these characters, maybe around the dinner table or when the neighbours come to visit or your relatives come to visit. You just sort of trot some of these little voices out and it makes everybody laugh and it makes everybody happy. And it seemed to contribute to a, a nice atmosphere. And I thought, oh, that's rather good. Onto something here. And I was egged on and did it all the more because of that. But that's not the sort of thing you can go to your careers teacher and say, I'd like to make a living out of this. I said I wanted to be a television presenter and they said people from Grimsby don't become television presenters, you should become a teacher. But I mean, that's more unusual. You probably didn't even, I would have thought when you were younger, even know how you could make a career out of those voices. So how did you end up going down that path as it's not really a traditional career? <laughs> <laughs> I did have the same experience with careers teachers. Did you? Sometimes, you know, careers teachers will tell you this sensible option. They'll say, oh, no, you can't do that. And cloud cuckoo then. Ridiculous. It's a bit of realism here. Nothing will spur you on more than hearing that. Nothing gives you that sense of, oh, yeah, right, well, we'll show you then, won't we? That's a nice thing to have. And there was another careers teacher called Eric, Eric Seal. He was a wonderful mentor, a great, great chap, Eric Seal. And he was the teacher who said, really? 
Right, well, if you want to do that, then you get after it. You show some commitment, work hard at it. Don't think it's impossible. You get after it if you want to. And I wish you luck. Thank you. I'll have that alongside the other thing. And let's go after it. Proving those types of teachers wrong is quite a nice galvanising effect. Well, we'll save things like Spitting Image and William Hague for our part two, because we realised, didn't we, when we chatted about this, that there was going to be far too much to cram into one episode. But last time we spoke, in fact, which led to us recording today... I rang my mate, Rory Bremner, and he said, I'm driving in, I think he was in Wales or something, and he said, I'm driving with Tom Baker. Say hello to Tom Baker. I was wondering at that point, actually, I thought, bless him, I thought Tom Baker had passed away. And suddenly Tom Baker came on the phone. Well, I know I was I was sort of sitting there very innocently, and uh, Rory and I had been on the same team of a live edition of uh, I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, where we'd been very m- mischievous uh, on our team, you know. And I was just driving along and, and Rory had this idea that uh, perhaps he should introduce me to the uh, the phone call. as Tom Baker. I hadn't prompted him. And I thought, well, he said it now, so I'm going to have to go along with it. And so I did. So <laughs> I'm sorry if this was uh, temporarily confusing or perplexing or something like that. I could just imagine the, your, your raised eyebrows as you tried to... Uh, make sense of it. (laughs) (laughs) You did make me laugh, but it just seemed funny that you two boys were, I was trying to imagine the kind of conversation or the laughter that you two have when you're on the road together. And you compare notes sometimes, don't you? Oh, yes, all, all the time. Go on, exactly all different voices. Utterly, utterly. The, the way you would imagine th- these conversations to go, that's exactly how Give they are. Give me a sample. How does it go? It would be a little bit like, you know, Royce, you know, he, he's quite, you know, he's sort of like, he goes very quickly. He's, you know, quite sort of speeded up. And, um, you know, this, the, you know, they, you see the ideas happening very, very fast. And, of course, you know, the thing with John Major, you know, oh, yes, of course, yes, yes that was normal. Yes, of course. And, of course, I, you know, oh, you, he can go into Julian Clary, that sort of thing, you know. And I go, yes, he does. Yes, my. John Major would be at this sort of tone, uh, giving an interview. And sometimes, if you make him more aggressive, he goes into Michael Caine. And yes, he does do, he does do that. And he, oh, do you, Ricky Gervais? Do you, Ricky? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, fine. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Junction five of the M9. Yeah. Oh, motorways. Great. Oh. And then, uh, then Rory would do King Charles and so on. And then his electric car needed charging up. So we called into. He said, OK, I'm just going to go off, off the app here. And this shows exactly where, you know, it's like a docking procedure. He could have worked for NASA. <laughs> the way he uh, runs through these ideas so brilliantly. And he pulled the car into uh, a garage and plugged it in. And the two of us just walked in side by side. And this chap saw the pair of us. And he looked that way and looked that way. And pointed. He said, oh, can I get a picture? Can I get a picture of the two of you? And he did. And he went, he sounded like Blakey from other buses. And as he walked off, he went, oh, that's made my day, that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, honestly, I'm going to try not to wear you out before your dead ringers record this afternoon. And it is actually just tempting, John, to sit back and continue to be entertained. But I'm going to give you a break because we've got so much more to chat about. We haven't touched on things like spitting image or anything like that. Your long association as well. We touched on it slightly with Aliens, Daleks and Time Lords and the amazing documentary that I've listened to that you voiced as David Bowie. So uh, shall we park it for a moment and drink more Earl Grey tea? Let's have, let's, let's have a brew. Thank you for this lovely conversation. It's very therapeutic, you know. Good. All that and more coming up next week in part two of our special with John Colshaw. Time now for a commercial break. Absolutely. Windows can go up as well as down. Your home is at risk if you leave all the doors and windows open. A member of Loutro. I don't know what that means. (laughs) 